Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and open our hearts to your work of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin this brief uh, reflection with a definition and a question. But the question first, why repent? Why repent? The definition of repentance, because sometimes we use words so much that we forget exactly what they mean. I do that all the time. A change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God. It's the Lexham Bible Dictionary's definition of repentance, what it means to repent. Why repent? Repentance is one of the main themes of Lent. It's how Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, Joel 2. It was kind of the beginning of this entire series on Joel. Ash Wednesday, Lent, they have this penitential character, a theme, a a season of repentance. Gary asked another question. Maybe he just answered it. I'm not sure if he asked it on the first Sunday of Lent in his sermon. Uh, He at least answered it. Why confess? He offered that Uh, He would hear the private confessions of anyone that wanted to come into this church on Thursdays and according to our prayer book service, hear the confession of a person and grant them the assurance of God's pardon and forgiveness. And he said this, what if confession is the means by which God brings about purpose in our lives? He was talking about that famous book, uh, The Purpose Driven Church, how every human has five purposes. And he was asking the question, well, part of why we might confess is because what if that's the way that God brings about purpose for us and for a church? And so I want to ask the similar question, why repentance? And answer in a similar way. Because I think our text for Joel this afternoon, it gives us one answer. It's not the only answer. There are surely plenty, but it's a good answer. Repentance is one of the main themes of Joel and of every prophet, not surprisingly. It's built into Joel's very structure. The structure of Joel begins with the day of the Lord. The first and the second chapters both have the day of the Lord. Chapter one is a past day of the Lord, something that Joel is looking back to. And chapter two, at least the beginning of the chapter, is something he's looking forward to. It's a future day of the Lord. And in those beginnings, in the beginning of Joel, in chapter one, in the beginning of chapter two, there's a threefold pattern that he follows, both for this past day of the Lord and this future day of the Lord. The pattern is this. He announces disaster. He calls to repentance, and then he shows forth acts of repentance. So there's an announcement of a disaster or a judgment. There is a call to God's people to repent, and then he shows the people repenting. He shows forth repentance. This is how uh, the lead-up to our lesson this afternoon begins. Verse 17 Right before we begin reading, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? That is an act of repentance. Joel is responding to the call to repentance by an act of repentance, and the act is a prayer, spare your people, O Lord. And this is where we get our answer. Why repent? Because the Lord 
answers. Because he responds. Because when we repent, he shows up and does something. Verses 18 and 19. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Then the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Why repent? Because when we do, the Lord answers. The Lord responds. And throughout the rest of our text, this section in Joel, he responds in three ways. The first is the defeat of the invaders. Verses 21, or 20 and 21. I will remove from you the northerner far from you. I will drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. He removes our oppressors from us. One of the things he does when we repent. This reminded me of um, a couple authors that we often read in Inklings, C.S. Lewis and John Eldridge. They have this vision of the universe that is uh, different than ours in so many ways. A vision of the universe that you might call enchanted. There's a... um, a whole line of philosophical reflection on the disenchantment of our world. How people don't believe that spirits exist or God exists or all the fairy tales we hear about in medieval times. And Lewis is just so good at picking up on this idea that, well, maybe uh, the dark ages really were onto something, right? Maybe our enlightened, rational, post-18th century Europe understanding of the world needs some fixing. They have an enchanted universe where sin, our acts of sin, actually enslave us to the demonic. It's one of those aspects of sin that we don't like to touch or talk about or think about, or we may not even believe in because we've been so enculturated into this understanding that uh, demons and angels and they're, they're fairies and goblins. That's a medieval old way of thinking. We know better now. We know how the universe works. It's with microscopes and telescopes and what we can see. But an enchanted universe in which our acts of sin actually enslave us to demons... What a gracious relief when when we repent from those, God drives our enemies from us. I don't think about it enough, but when I sin in the particular ways that I know that I'm prone to sin, without knowing it, without thinking about it, I'm enslaved. And it very well could be a demonic activity that is right there meeting me through that portal, whatever it might be. Some candlesticks, maybe. Um, this idea in Eldridge, Lewis has this great enchanted universe, but Eldridge has this idea too that uh, the demonic can attach themselves to things, people, or objects that we bring into our home not, not knowing it. And so the, the bedtime prayer uh, for Eldridge brings the Holy Spirit through every aspect. I mean, the bed, the furnishings, the, the video games and movies, it's, it's a little funny, but it's It's not when you think about it because it's a serious thing that there are things that we can bring into our homes that have attached themselves to demons and we need to sanctify them and bring the Spirit to them. So part of what God does when we repent of our sin is He defeats the invaders. He drives from us what these things might be attaching themselves to us, this demonic activity, even if we don't realize it. Secondly, He restores the land. That's verses 22 through 26. 
Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given early rain for your vindication. Pour down for you abundant rain. Early and the latter rain. The threshing floors are full of grain. The vats overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you. The years the swarming locust has eaten, remember the beginning of Joel. The locusts come one after another and destroy whatever was left behind. And here's the the healing of the brokenness. So the restoration of the land, when we repent, our brokenness is healed. Our broken lives are healed. But what I love about this image of the land is that it's more than just us as individuals, our individual lives. It's, It's a land. It's a community. It's... A town like Georgetown, it's a state like South Carolina, it's a country like the United States. When his people repent, or when other people repent and join his kingdom, the land is healed. The brokenness that exists, not just in our individual hearts, but in the systems and the structures that we build up and build sin into, they are healed as well. Justice comes. Hope is offered. He restores the land. And then finally, the last way he answers our repentance is with his very presence. Verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. That I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. John Piper has a great book called God is the Gospel. And I I've quoted this before from memory, and I'm sorry if I butcher it. If somebody knows I'm butchering it, please help me. But he starts it, uh, I believe, with this story that he was on an airplane with his, one of his grandchildren. And they were up in the clouds. They were up in the heavenlies. And his grandchild looks out the window and asks, is God out there? Because you're up in heaven, right? And he, he weaves it into this great point that heaven isn't heaven if God isn't there. Every blessing that we could ever want, the healing of our bodies, of our minds, the forgiveness we long for, we crave for, knowing how badly we've hurt someone, for that relationship to be put back together, the blessing of a full vat of wine and oil, all of those are secondary to the very presence of God. When heaven is heaven, it will be because we will be with him. And nothing less. Because there's nothing more glorious than that. To actually be with, finally, forever, and fully, our God. So why repent? Because when we do, God answers. He answers our repentance. He responds to our repentance with his goodness, with his blessing. Driving from us our enemies. Healing our brokenness. And then finally and fully giving us himself and his presence. So I'd like to close in a little different way. If you would turn with me to page 81 in the Book of Common Prayer. And to close, we will pray together this canticle suitable for Lent, the Kyrie Pantocrator, subtitled A Song of Penitence. Page 81, canticle 3. Kyrie Pantocrator, I'd love to say this aloud together. 
O Lord and ruler of the hosts of heaven, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of all their righteous offspring, you made the heavens and the earth with all their vast array. All things quake with fear at your presence. They tremble because of your power. But your merciful promise is beyond all measure. It surpasses all that our minds can fathom. O Lord, you are full of compassion, long-suffering, and abounding in mercy. You hold back your hand. You do not punish as we deserve. In your great goodness, Lord, you have promised forgiveness to sinners, that they may repent of their sin and be saved. And now, O Lord, I bend the knee of my heart and make my appeal sure of your gracious goodness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I know my wickedness only too well. Therefore, I make this prayer to you. Forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Do not let me perish in my sin, nor condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent, and in me you will show forth your goodness. Unworthy as I am, you will save me in accordance with your great mercy. And I will praise you without ceasing all the days of my life. For all the powers of heaven sing your praises, and yours is the glory to ages of ages. Amen.